Grab your Bibles, turn to Exodus 20. Exodus 20. Acts 20, sorry. Forgive me. Thank you. Acts 20. I was watching a little YouTube video today on the uh, evidence of the Exodus, which is like, well, the thing I'm most fascinated about right now is that subject. I just find it a fascinating subject. I don't know if anyone's ever nerded out on that or not. It's fascinating. Um, but you don't care about that right now. Uh, we want to talk about going to sleep in church. Um, so Acts 20. Um, do any of you all remember the... Uh, we're going to go back to Exodus. Forgive me. Um, not, not, now you've got me thinking about Exodus. or I've got me thinking about Exodus. Uh, we, we did a sermon series through Exodus years ago. It's pre-COVID. It was like 40 years ago. And... Um, we did a documentary on uh, called Patterns of Evidence. It was, you know, what evidence is there of uh, the Exodus? If you have Tubi, you can access that for free um, and some of the other ones. Uh, it's a fascinating topic. I don't know. Um, they they, they, they kind of go in a direction that I'm not sure they can prove, but all the other stuff they present is quite fascinating um, because most believe there is no evidence of a mass Exodus, and there really seems to be. Now, what you're not going to get is the Pharaoh saying, oh, by the way, Yahweh beat me in a fair fight and all the Jews left. You're not going to get that. But there is evidence. For example, Asiatic um, uh, Semites and Avaris are there, and they go through a period of, um, of uh, they, they go from being a very wealthy group of people to a very impoverished people. Um, and then they seem to just disappear overnight. We can tell this by their graves. Uh, we have the names of some of the slaves in Egypt are Jewish names. Uh, some of them are actually named in the Bible. Not, not that they're the same people, but the, the, the Jewish names are, are there. Um, so it's just a fascinating subject. But you don't care. You didn't come here for that. That's me nerding out. Um, Exodus, or I'm doing it again. Acts chapter 20. I'm not going to say it anymore. We are in the 20th chapter of, of the fifth book of the New Testament. There you go. Uh, and this is a, a story that we all know is there and we find um, humorous. Uh, but I, I think I think it'd be be worth our time. Acts twenty verse seven. We'll go down to verse twelve. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. Being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him. And taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. When Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and, and were not a little, little comforted. Okay. Um, I don't know if anyone remembers uh, years ago, um, the book came I, I read it, uh, actually listened to it uh, when I was in Breckridge County. So this book is probably close to 15 years now. The book is called The Last Lecture by Randy Pausch. Pausch? I don't know how to pronounce the last name. Not a Christian book at all. Um, I, I read it for a sermon illustration. So, um, But he was a professor of computer science at Carnegie Mellon University. He was diagnosed in 2006 with pancreatic cancer. And the following year, he was given a terminal diagnosis. So the last lecture is uh, essentially uh, in book form his literal last lecture he gave uh, at the university. 
Um, and it was entitled, um, uh, did I write that? I may not have wrote that down. The book is um, the last lecture, Really Achieving Your Childhood Dreams. I think that was what they, and he gave that in 2007. Uh, they put it in book form, became a New York Times bestseller. It was a big, big deal. I remember when it came out. He died in 2008. One part that sticks out to me about the book, I'm not recommending you go read or anything. It is a bit of a tearjerker, you know, so you ladies who like that sort of thing. Uh, not a Christian book, so I'm not recommending that sense, but, um, you know, if, if you want to cry, there you go. It's not a very big book. Uh, there's, a, there's a scene where he's talking to his doctor, pastor, and some other people about what are some things they can do to, to, to prepare for death. And one of the things that was a fascinating idea that's always stuck with me is that he, he, had, he had little kids at home that— uh, doctor, pastor, whoever recommended that he actually regularly record videos. Um, and one of the things he would record is, you know, when his children hit 18, for example, what, what would he want to tell his children as they become adults, you know, when they graduate high school or college or get married, stuff like that. So just recorded just everyday stuff, but also uh, just words of wisdom from a father to, to their children. Every dad loves to do, even whenever uh, they don't want to hear it. Um, and uh, so, so that way, after he passed, and he, he passed away in 2008, and those children, I assume, are grown now, um, they would have their father still speaking to them um, throughout their, their childhood. And I was thinking in reading this story that if, if you were to record videos like that, what would you want uh, to have them to say? Um, similarly, what you have Paul doing here is that this is the last time he believes he will see the Ephesians. Um, he is rounding out his third and final um, major missionary journey. Uh, we'll, we'll probably spend quite a bit of time in chapter 21, 26, Sunday evening, probably. That's subject to change. But um, um, he, he is well aware, particularly when he comes into 21, that Agabus, the uh, prophet or whatever, warns Paul. I think you'll read about Agabus tomorrow warns Paul that uh, whoever is wearing this belt will be executed, right? He's going to die. He's, he's going to be arrested. He's going he's to suffer. So Paul is well aware that this is probably the last time he is going to see them. And no wonder, then, he's a bit long-winded. I, I, I think we can, we can be sympathetic to that, right? And to a certain extent, if you knew this was the last time you were going to hear and see someone you dearly love, are, are you going to rush them, right? You want to take in everything that they, they have to say. Um, I've done that as a pastor where some people who you, you know that um, uh, they've, you know, their, their time is running short, I will often go visit with them and just let them talk. Just ask open-ended questions about their life. And uh, uh, you really just want to hang on to, to every, every minute of that. I had a teacher in middle school who had a grandparent like that and uh, would spend about every weekend a couple hours and just have them talk about their story and just write it all down. That's a fascinating thing to do. And uh, because this is it, time is, time is running out. I think Spielberg has done something similar with the World War II generation. Uh, he, you know, of course, Spielberg's done a lot of World War II movies, uh, Saving Private Ryan and, and others. But um, he has a real fascination with that and wanted to preserve their stories before that generation passed. So that's what's what Paul is doing here. Now, uh, in Paul's defense, he has made it clear before he is not an eloquent speaker. Right? Let me give you a few examples here. 2 Corinthians 11, even if I am unskilled in speaking, 
I am not so in knowledge, right? You got to love that. I may not be able to articulate what I'm trying to say, but I know what I'm trying to say, right? I, th- I, th- I think we've all been there, right? Uh, but he, he frequently mentions he, he's not an engaging speaker. 1 Corinthians, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of his power. Something Paul actually saw great strength in his lack of ability in that when people come to Christ, he knows it's not because of his great gifts. It's because of the work of the Spirit. Um, Luther was once asked, you know, what does he credit for really the Reformation? Luther, the world was different because Luther lived in it. It's a line from a biography that I have of him. I think that's true. And his answer was, I don't know, I just got up and preached and the word took off. Uh, I think there's some real truth to that. Uh, Luther was very careful. Okay, he has such a low view of himself because it's his doctrine of, of sin, but um, he was very careful never to take credit. One more, um, uh, maybe. Uh, Don, I may have to steal your help again. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 10, for they say, they say, his critics, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak his speech is of no account. Um, I don't know if you follow a lot of like pastors and whatnot. I obviously do, theologians and whatnot. Your greatest theologians, I would strongly encourage you not to take a seminary class with them. Right? Great with the pen, terrible in class. Right? One of my favorite pastors, he, he is one of my favorite, uh, yeah, there we go. He's one of my favorite writers. I, I, I could read everything, just, just the way he writes. Um, poor, poor Annette, uh, he, he does a daily blog and I'll, I'll go through it sometimes and, and I'll go in there laughing cause he's really sarcastic and I will read to her like a few paragraphs saying, even if you don't like what he's saying, I love how he says it, right? Like, like you, you become envious of it, but then, you know, he's done a sermon series through first and second Samuel. So I've been going through it with him and he's been really helpful to me, but he's not a very good speaker. In fact, his approach to preaching, I, I find quite boring. He, he takes 10 or 15 minutes to just summarize everything he read, right? No introduction, hardly any illustrations. He just, just repeats everything he reads and then has some preach. Not, I don't think he's a very uh, uh, effective preacher, but he's an excellent writer. And that, that seems to be the impression we get with Paul. From, from a distance, you know, from his letters, he's very strong and lay the law down. But, but in presence, not very eloquent and quite, quite tender. Um, so no wonder then... Uh, uh, this young man falls asleep in church. Now, we read this story and we think, what's, why is this story here? It could be Luke has a sense of humor. I do like that. I think the Bible does have places of humor in it. God himself says he laughs at uh, idol worshipers, which encourages me. God has sense of humor. Jesus demonstrates sense of humor. Maybe that's what Luke is doing to preserve this forever that Paul uh, put people to sleep in, in his messages. But but I don't think it's about sleeping at church. I really think more we could say it's about sleeping in life. Um, I want, I want to look, look at this since, since we've been looking at, we'll spend, what, three weeks on, on Acts. Um, you could take Acts and break it down into two parts, a part dominated by Peter and a part dominated by Paul. Here's the outline of Peter's ministry. Uh, you get his first sermon followed by he heals a lame man, a sorcerer he addresses. His shadow, people come under his shadow, people get healed. Um, you can see all the references here. He lays on hands and things happen. He is, someone tries to worship Peter. We talked about that not too long ago. Maybe this past Sunday evening, Cornelius uh, did that. Uh, he raises Tabitha from the dead, uh, and then he's in prison in chapter 12, right? So that, that's sort of just a very generic outline of Peter. Well, Luke, interestingly, gives you the same outline for Paul. 
Uh, he, he gives his first sermon in chapter 13, shortly after his conversion. Uh, he heals a lame man. Uh, he meets a sorcerer. Um, uh, it's his handkerchief. People, people grab his handkerchief and, and, and are healed. It's shadow for Peter's handkerchief for Paul. Uh, he lays on hands and people, things happen. Uh, he's worshiped. Uh, we saw that last week with Lystra. Um, uh, he raises Eutychus here and he's imprisoned. Uh, I, I have chapter 28. It's really chapter 21 to 28. He's imprisoned. Um, but it's, it's the same, same story. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, that, that, uh, and it isn't because Luke is running out of ideas, but you're seeing the ministry of Paul mirrors that of Peter. Um, and that's important to, to Luke because Paul was a persecutor of Christ. And yet God uses, Christ uses Paul equally to the extent that he uses Peter. And so, so the Jerusalem Council is, is, is the real pivot, right? Because Peter speaks first. We saw this in the evening. And then Paul takes over. And James is there facilitating it. So I just find this stuff fascinating. You can do with it whatever you want, um, but I, I just think it's, it's neat. Well, let's start with the setting here. The first thing to note is who is with Paul. Uh, this will be helpful to you as, as you go through this part of Acts. Um, notice verse 7, on the first day of the week when we gathered. Who's the we? Have you ever noticed that about Acts? It's odd, isn't it? Now that I pointed out to you, because I had a professor point it out to me, and I can never unsee it. You will never unsee it. I'm sure when Danny went through, uh, spent 12 years going through Acts, he pointed this out. Um, now, who's the we here? It's, it's Luke. Now, I can prove to you it's Luke, particularly next week, really starting tomorrow, but for the rest of your reading through Acts, highlight the detail. When you're in a we statement, the detail goes through the roof. If you want just a simple example of this, chapters 27 and 28, Luke describes details about the ship that, that, that wrecks out at sea and lands on Malta. I mean, detail you do not need at all. Who was on the boat, what was said, what the boat looked like, when, how long they were out. You don't need to know any of that information. But Luke goes out of his way to give like very specific detail because what you're getting in Acts, at least this part of Acts, is eyewitness testimony. Now, I've shown this before and, and we've all forgotten and that's fine. But you could easily do the same thing with the Gospels, the four Gospels, where, where there's a lot of detail or there's unique detail. The Gospel writers will often give you their eyewitnesses. For example, blind Bartimaeus. I believe Mark mentions him. But that story of Bartimaeus is mentioned in, in two of the other Gospels, the Synoptics. However, in those Gospels, his name has been omitted. Mark gives us his name for no other reason than to give us his name. I think Mark has given us his eyewitness. And there's, there's other examples of that. John's Gospel ends with a we statement. We testify that his, uh, his story is true. Now, who's the we there, Right? That's more mysterious. It's probably the Ephesian elders uh, who were affirming uh, that everything's true and that this is a story John had shared with them. But nevertheless, th this is one of, one of the we statements here. Luke is here. So we have not just the testimony of Paul, who is closely associated with, with Luke. We have Luke affirming these things. Okay? With that said, notice the setting. First of all, it is the first day of the week. I want to spend a little bit of time on this because I'm a nerd and also because since I've been in Frankfurt, this subject has come up more than, than I would have been able to predict. Have, where were you when you realized that the Sabbath was a Saturday and Sunday is not the Sabbath, right? Do you remember that moment in your life? I do. 
right? I was staring at the calendar like, why is it they put Sunday at the beginning, not the end? You know, and then it hit me. Oh, because Sunday is the first day of the week. It's the day of the sun. Sabbath is the day of Saturn. It's Saturday. Well, then that, that begs the question. Right? We take our Sabbath on Sunday, but the Sabbath is on Saturday. Are we violating the Ten Commandments? Why do we worship on Sundays? Well, I want us to notice a couple things. But the answer, the short answer is because Jesus was raised from the dead on Sunday. That's the short answer. Now, it is very clear in the Bible Jesus was raised on Sunday. Uh, to give you a few references, Matthew 28, 1. This is the first verse of you starting the resurrection. Uh, after the Sabbath, the dawn of the first day of the week, that's Sunday, right? Uh, Mark 16, the Sabbath was passed, right? First day of the week there in verse 2. Uh, Luke, the first day of the week at early dawn, right? The, the minute the day started, the sunrise, because the, the Jews, their day doesn't start at midnight. They, 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 their days start around 6. Uh, so you have the first hour, second hour, it starts at 6 on, on, on our clocks. John, same thing, uh, first day of the week, right? Clearly, Jesus was raised Sunday morning, first day of the week, Christ is risen from the dead, right? His empty tomb is, is found. Well, that becomes the standard practice within the early church to commemorate that event. You have good Jewish boys and girls who have always celebrated the Sabbath and their work day, work week starts on Sunday, not Monday, starts on Sunday. So they would rise extra early on Sunday morning to gather with other believers before going out to work. So Acts 20 here in verse 1. Also, you can see it uh, here in Acts 20 in verses 7, 11, and 13. The first day of the week is, is referenced. Let me give you a few others. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection of saints, as I direct the churches of Galatia, I also do on the first day of every week. Why that day? Because that is the day they worship. And what do you do in worship? You collect your tithes and offerings. Paul, as he, in Galatia, they're doing this. In Corinth, they're doing this. Paul is asking, and this affects actually our story. Paul's asking for the Gentile churches to collect an offering, a love offering, to give to the Jerusalem Christians who are suffering persecution. A way for the Gentiles to be generous to the Jews, right? To sort of help with the unity thing. Uh, one more here, Revelation 1.10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. When is the Lord's day? It's not the day of the Lord. This is the Lord's day. And this, of course, is Sunday. What is John doing? He is in the Spirit. He is in worship. Because this is what the early Christians did. Now, if you want more evidence of this outside of the Bible, the earliest Christians, uh, the epistle of Barnabas, notice the language. He describes Sunday as the eighth day the day of rejoicing. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Now, I've, I've shown you this before. Jesus dies on a Friday. That's the day of man. He is resting on the day of rest, the Sabbath. He comes to life on the day of new creation. So the early Christians, to, to, to express that, describe it as the eighth day. Now, there aren't eight days in a week. What they're saying is a new week has started. New creation has come. It's day eight. Let me give you one more example. This is Justin Martyr's first letter of apology to Caesar. I, if you're going to read the early patristics, I recommend Justin Martyr. I really enjoyed reading him, and he's not hard to read too much. On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gathered together to one place. 
the memoirs of the apostles. What are those? It's the gospels, it's acts, it's, it's, it's the epistles. Um, or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. I love that. I had to include that. As long as time permits, right? You know, until they say, all right, preacher, <laughs> fried chicken is ready. You know, we, Kroger called, right? It, it, it's time to wrap it up. Um, I've told the story of James before, right, where, where Ken had to come out and say, you know, the ladies in the back, the food's getting cold. It's time to wrap it up, you know? And uh, I, I love that. Um, so, so it's Sunday. You'll notice also they are breaking bread. Um, so when the church gathers, uh, they, they would share communion with, with each other. So, so they, they worship on the day of the resurrection, and they have ordinances that remind them of their, their, their salvation in Christ by the means of the cross and resurrection. And there is preaching. Um, now, uh, we can trace preaching back to the Old Testament, uh, Ezra standing up to preach, for example. But in the way we understand it now is really a New Testament phenomenon. Uh, John the Baptist comes proclaiming, uh, repent, King God is a hand. Jesus, of course, has, has his sermons. Matthew has five major sermon sections. But Peter, when the Spirit descends, uh, Peter gets up to preach. And, and, and the reason preaching is a big deal within Christianity and not as big of a deal Judaism and Islam and others is because Christianity is a story-driven faith. It's, it's, it's narrative. Narrative is something that has to be heard and experienced. So in Judaism and Islam, those are law-based religions. So, so they're going to emphasize a book. Here are the rules, follow them. Christianity comes, yes, we, we have a book, we believe it, but it directs us to a story that God has entered human history. So that story has to be told. So we believe in preaching, and in telling that story, there is a response to the story, repent, believe the gospel. Right, so, so preaching is really a Christian phenomenon, uh, the way, way we understand it today. It's why we still do it today. Um, this occasion, Paul's sermon went a little long, well into midnight. Um, now, we should pause here and realize what the term midnight means. It means middle of the night. It does not mean bedtime, right? You know, for some of us, like that's the only time when you put the kids to bed at night, you're thinking, I have X amount of time to not have kids, right? So I'm going to stay up as late as I can, right? You hit midnight, like, oh, it's probably too late, right? Um, um, but uh, at this time, there's, there's no modern technology. So you go to bed with the sun, you get up with the sun, right? And this is the middle of the night. In pioneer times, midnight is roughly the time you get up to uh, put wood on the fire to keep the house warm, right? So you get up at midnight because it's the middle of the night. You put your wood on, you go back to sleep. Um, so uh, people didn't want to fight darkness the way we do because you don't really have headlights and flashlights and all that sort of stuff. So nighttime was the end of the workday. You work while the sun was up. You sleep while the sun is down. That, that, that was your life in, in, in a nutshell. Um, when man and I first got married, um, the hurricane winds came through Louisville um, and it knocked out like a lot of the power, knocked our power out. A tree landed on the apartment right next to us and did some real damage. And um, we, we couldn't, we literally could not make it to work because of down trees. And it was a crazy time. This is 2006. Uh, the hurricane came through. And I remember it was, it was getting dark at like 6, 6.30, something like that. And, and we go to the apartment. We're newlyweds. Like we have no idea what we're doing. And, and we're just like, so what do we do now? It's just like 7 o'clock. We had dinner in the dark. 
I guess we're going to go to bed. <laughs> I mean, like, what do you do? You know, it's just, it's, uh, our, some of our neighbors hosted everyone down. We all had Domino's pizza and we're eating pizza in the dark. And then we all realized this was a bad idea. You know, like, like we can get flashlights back, but you can't really maintain a conversation in someone's living room with no lights on. Right. You know, so so we, we only did that once. The lights were out for about five days or something like that. So 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 um, Paul keeps preaching and he's preaching through the night. So it's already past their bedtime, and he just keeps going. That's the setting. We, we get to slumber in verses 8 to 9. Um, they, they, they gather to worship. And Luke tells us something unique about the setting. That is, there are many lamps. That makes sense, right? Because how else are you going to light um, uh, everything here? Now, some scholars suggest what Luke is really doing here is he's, he's trying to get Paul off the hook a little bit. You ever been to a campfire and you're just minding your own business. You're looking at the fire. You can't take your eye off the fire, can you? There's just something about it. And before long, a cool breeze comes. You're staring at the fire, and you start to doze off. You ever have that experience, right? And then some see that that's what Luke is doing. He's trying to get Paul off the hook a, a, a little bit. Uh, now imagine you're in a room full of flames, right? Uh, the lamps are everywhere, not a lot of uh, circulation. Um, and this is probably why Eutychus is nearest the, the window there in verse 9. Um, a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. He just will not stop talking. He's on point 8,000 at, at this point, right? You know, get the Jesus and, and end the sermon, preacher, right? It's, it's, it's what Eutychus is trying to say, but he's, he's just dreaming it, right? Um, but he, he's nearest the window. And I love this because we still do this to this day. Right. Um, when when uh, we, we took a trip to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina to watch my favorite soccer team, who won today, for none of you who care. Uh, they are the only undefeated team. They've won every game. That is uh, five games. They've won all five games. They are number one in the English Premier League, and you could not care less. And, and But we went to watch Arsenal. But we had to drive back in the middle of the night because the kids had to uh, go to camp or something uh, the next day. So we drove in the middle of the night and everyone else is asleep. This is the way it works in our family. And I have to drive and I'm starting to doze off. So what do you do? You can't crank the radio because then everyone wakes up. So you roll the window down, you stick your head out, right? You let, you let, you just let the air, the bugs, whatever it is, you just, and you hope it's raining. You just, just to hit you, right? Uh, this is what this guy's doing. You can, you can kind of see him just, Oh, stick my head out the window. <laughs> Everyone else is asleep but me, you know. Um, he, he's right there by, by, by the window. But despite his best efforts, he, he falls asleep. My second sermon um, was the same sermon as my first sermon, but it was at a nursing home. I've told this story before. And uh, mom and dad went, I'm like 13 years old. And I think my pastor didn't want to preach at the nursing home. It was his turn. You know how churches take, take turns? So he asked me to do it. I just preached like two weeks prior, my first sermon. It was like 12, 13 minutes. He asked me to do it. Of course, I want to preach. Right? Let's just do this. Did the same sermon. It was on Friends. I shared that when we went through Proverbs. And these are nursing home people. They, they couldn't care less. Like They're not interested in making friends. But it's all I had. And there was a lady in the back who started, she fell asleep. My dad got so angry at that. I mean, angry, um, because he found it offensive that his youngest son is, you know, doing his best and putting her to sleep. I've since learned that um, I think every young preacher should start preaching in a nursing home. 
you will learn all you need to learn about preaching to, to a congregation in a nursing home. Everything that can happen will happen every time in a nursing home, every time. I've told you some stories, horror stories in, in the past. Uh, there was one gentleman in, uh, when I was at Goshen, he would drive from, from Louisville, lo- loved him to death. Herman was just an awesome guy. Um, he would drive from Louisville to, to, to Glendine to, to run the Sunday school program. Um, and inevitably within 10 minutes of every sermon, he'd fall asleep. But he was getting up early, crossing uh, um, uh, time zones to come uh, to, to work Sunday school and to worship. He grew up in the town. Yeah, he'd always go check on his mom's property and stuff. But he'd fall asleep every single time, every single time with, without delay. Um, and uh, um, but so so Paul isn't alone in, in all this. I'm sure you've heard the story of you know teachers, professors, whatever in seminaries. They would have a student fall asleep and so get the whole class. I'm sure this is true. Someone's done this. Whole class gets up and leaves but leave their stuff there. And so that when the student wakes up, they think they missed the rapture, you know. So um, that only works if they're a pre-trib dispensation. It wouldn't work on Don, Danny. It wouldn't, wouldn't work on him. Um, but uh, now, unlike most of these stories, this nap is actually deadly. Uh, he's likely up in the upper room, quite high up. Um, I had my preaching professor told me, in the middle of a sermon, one of his members had a heart attack. They had to call an ambulance, had, had to come get him. And he says, I don't know if it's true or not. Probably is true. But he said that when they got the man on the ambulance and all the excitement was over with, he got back in the pulpit and finished his sermon. That's like one of those things that you're glad it happened to other people, but you pray it never happens to you, right? I have no idea what, what, what to do in that sort of situation. Dr. York tells the story um, that he did a wedding where the bride got sick in the middle of the ceremony. That's enough details for you, right? I'm like, what, what, what do you do in that situation, right? So, so here he is just preaching, right? Giving it his all. And a guy dies, he's so boring, right? He'd rather die than hear the final three points of his sermon, right? Um, but, but nevertheless, poor Eutychus um, but you'll notice in verse 10, despite that, Paul went down, bent over him, taking him in his arms, says, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. Now, now um, a couple points to make here. One, Eutychus is really dead. Remember, Luke is a physician. And, and there are Greek words to describe someone who passed out, got a, a, a severe concussion, something like that. but he's really dead. And no doubt, Luke responds right in there. Um, my dad was a fireman for, for many years. To this day, it, he can respond so quickly when he sees a medical emergency. There is something about those who are trained in that field. Man, they are quick when there's a medical emergency. They, they can almost anticipate it, it seems like. Uh, so you know Luke is there and verifying that he has died. Now, Paul's language is familiar. He says, do not be alarmed, his life is in them. Um, this is similar to what the angel says at the tomb. Do not be alarmed, he is risen. Very, very similar language. Um, and also, Paul looks and acts a lot like Elijah and Elisha. Remember that, that when they dealt with their uh, resuscitations, they, they, are, um, they lay over the body. Here, uh, Paul is bent over the body. They cry out to God that, that they raise him. So, so I think there's a whole lot going on here in just a single, single verse. Um, and of course, most fascinating to me is when Paul had gone up, had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them even longer, right? It's now, now they're in the question and answer part of the, of the service, right? You're lucky we don't do that. Can you imagine, right? No, no questions, preacher. No, we, we just, 
they're almost out of fried chicken, right? <laughs> you know, the kernel is almost out. Hurry up, the Presbyterians have beat us there. Um, but, but what is striking is, 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 is not, um, isn't this miraculous work of God, but that following it is the church is celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's, 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 it's like what happens to Eutychus is a picture of grace, but communion was the picture of grace. I mean, isn't that fascinating? They just witnessed a resuscitation, but then they gather to celebrate the resurrection. That, that's, just, that's just so neat to me. Because you would think, well, can't top this. I just raised someone from the dead. No, no, there is something far greater than what happened here. All of us have been risen from the dead. Christ is risen from, from the dead. So uh, what, what do we do with, with this text? This is just a fun text to look at, and I thought it'd be fun to, uh, we usually go deep diving on Wednesday nights. I thought it'd be fun to keep it simple. Uh, a couple things here. First of all, um, what we see is the beauty of the local church. Um, again, Paul is winding down his uh, third missionary journey. He's visiting some of the churches he has planted, like the Ephesian church. Go up to chapter 20, verse 3 to 4. Um, notice it here. Uh, there he spent, I believe this is in Macedonia. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by, um, yeah. Uh, he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return to Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, there's that reference to Derby. Remember the the, the uh, uh, Lystra story, and Timothy from Lystra, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophinus. Um, they went on ahead. Now, why, why is that so important? We don't have a lot of information on most of these characters. Um, Aristarchus shows up in one of the letters. Um, Timothy, we we know of. Gaius does, but. I don't think we know anything about Sopater. I don't think he's ever mentioned again. So, so why I mention him? What sticks out to me is that th this is the testimony of the local church. These are people who are in a local church like you and I are, and they're involved in local church like you and I are. I bet Sopater was on the nomination committee, no doubt, right? I'm sure Timothy got his start serving on the uh, kitchen committee, of course, right? And and um, maybe... Maybe the Asians, Tychicus and Trophinus, were on the search committee, the personnel committee that, that brought the, the, the latest preacher. I don't know. But, but the, these, these are just the beauty of the local church. And so Paul is on this sort of farewell tour, and he knows that what awaits him in, in, in Jerusalem. And at each stop, we get insights into the beauty of the local church. And in this count, we have an entire congregation in worship with Paul. And they worship nonstop because there is nothing more important on their calendar. I mean, you... you, you you're talking about a celebration here, right? They're not celebrating their 60th anniversary. They're celebrating their last anniversary with someone. This is it. And, and they, they want to soak in all the fellowship they can. They are living life together. They are there together, and they are with one another. Eutychus was among this congregation, and everyone knew him by name, and they knew his story. Secondly, our tendency um, here is of being present but missing out. Um, although Eutychus is never presented as anything but a victim of natural weakness, the Bible is clear that we can equally, equally be present yet absent. Um, 
Jesus says in John 9, 41, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. What's his point there in John 9 is a lot of you all see, but you are blind. That's why Jesus healed the blind man so that the blind can see and the seeing can be revealed as being blind. So too, many of us, we could just go through life just, just we are absent-minded through a lot of things. I think that's gotten worse in secular America. The more secular we become, the more apathetic we become to spiritual matters. And this it makes the part really frustrating. Um, when I was in Breckenridge County, our church grew because of funerals. I, I, I've told you all before, I, I did. Who knows how many funerals my first three months? I mean, I, that's all I did was funerals. Um, and we grew. Uh, we were ministering the families through, through grief process and everything. And we grew because most of the funerals I did, there was the sense of loss and the sense of judgment that came with that. I've got to get my life right because death has a way of doing that. But I've noticed just prior to COVID, a real switch there. I don't know how many funerals I do. And I did a funeral recently, just a few weeks ago, to where, where I thought there is no reason why I was asked to come here. Like increasingly that what they want is someone to stand there over the grave, read an obituary, read a Bible verse, and that's it. And I was told by one family, we don't want a message. We want to get it over with quick. And I think, why am I here then? Right? And I always try to sneak in two minutes of gospel. But it's, it's amazing that, that how often you, you can say, here, here is death in front of us. And this is your story as well. What are you going to do with it? And it is just staring at a blank wall. How easy it is for us to be present, but absent at the same time. Um, all right, finally, uh, the importance of keeping watch. After this scene, Paul travels uh, to Ephesus and he meets with the church. Go down to verse 28 of chapter 20. Don't fall asleep on me yet. Verse 28. Um, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Um, The NIV is helpful. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Keep watch. The term is often translated as beware. It's a call to action. Stay awake. It's it's as if he's saying that. Be aware. Pay attention. Keep watch. We are at our weakest when we are not paying attention. That's true physically, right? If if, if you're not paying attention when you're driving, uh, you're, you're a danger to yourself, to everyone else on the road. That's why distracted driving is bad. Texting, um, not being sober, um, inviting your in-laws to ride with you and sit in the back and judge everything you do like they do and everything else in your life. Distracted driving is dangerous driving. So too, um, um, when we are distracted in our spiritual life, um, that is when we are in, in, in great danger. And we Americans love to be distracted. Um, in sports, uh, you are most vulnerable when, when you score. In fact, uh, I told you my favorite soccer team won today. Uh, they, were, they were winning the whole game. One goal to nothing. One nil, as they say in, in Europe. And then they let the other team score. Just out of nowhere, the other team's that's tied. And within two minutes, Arsenal scored to take the lead again. Why? 
In sports, you are most vulnerable when you score. This is a basketball state. Whenever your team makes an alley-oop dunk between the legs backwards from, you know, from the rafters, right? Some incredible play, watch for the fast break that comes right after it. While we're like, yeah, I'm the man. Do you see what I did in your face? Oh, they're already down there scoring on you, right? When, when, when we have any sort of success or when, when we, 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 we are um, not paying attention, that is when we are most vulnerable. What's the most important thing in baseball? When it comes to batting, keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. Pay attention. Watch out. Um, I think COVID has shown us that for many Christians, we have a settled faith. We have a settled faith. We, had, we were just going through the motions, and when, when those motions were interrupted, we never had the motivation to reset Every church is roughly a third less in worship attendance than it was pre-COVID. Every church is across the board. We're no different from that. What happened? You mean to tell me an international pandemic is sufficient alone for people to say, I don't need regular worship with the people of God. The gospel didn't change. Our spiritual needs didn't change. What did? What did? Well, in those moments, we, we are quite vulnerable. How about we, we end it there? The message is, yes, don't fall asleep in church um, because I may call on you to pray. But um, more importantly, don't fall asleep in life. All right. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And in this time of prayer, let's not fall asleep.